As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Mary, Mother of the Church. A talk by Brother Michael Callanen. I'm nervous now. <laughs> um, firstly, I'd just like to begin with a, a big thanks to Madeline and Bernadette and the Executive AXA to invite us uh, here to be, to be talking here today. And also, just to say it's a delight for us to sponsor the conference this year, so thanks for that opportunity. And I'm especially grateful that you've asked me to speak about a topic which resonates strongly with me, but also, not only because I'm a Maris brother, I believe that what I'd like to share with you today in fact assists greatly with being Christian in the contemporary world, and that's the subtext of, of your conference theme. And I'm assuming that the I in I am with you always is Jesus Christ. So, we know from our human history and the study of Scripture and our experience in the church that without Mary, there is no Jesus. Our God chooses to become incarnate and be made man through the nurturing process of being mothered. And that mother is this peasant girl, Mary. So, who am I? Well, I got a bit of an introduction before, but let me say a little bit more. The first thing you need to know is I am not an academic, so apologies about that. Um, sure, I've got a Master's in Theology from the Catholic Institute of Sydney, um, the, the educational hub of the Catholic Archdiocese of Sydney Seminary. And I've studied scripture at master's level in the USA and the Middle East, so that was great. But my real passion is in practical pastoral theology, where the rubber hits the road. Um, and for me, I think that lines up well with what giving a talk about Mary, Mother of the Church, uh, actually is. She shows us how, I think, as a Christian, how the rubber hits the road. Um, a little bit of background. I'm a Sydney sider by birth, so don't boo if you're from Tasmania or from Victoria or Queensland. Um, but I did most of my schooling in South Africa, actually. Uh, and my folks have lived in Brisbane for more than half their lives. So I'm a, I'm a bit of a mixture, aren't I? Um, there's a mixture in not only my growing up, but also my church experience because of those different countries and, and states I've lived in. Um, it's true most of my adult life's been spent ministering in Catholic schools, uh, secondary schools, mainly as a teacher, but also as a leader in the, in the mission, identity of, and faith practice in Catholic schools. And now I find myself managing campus ministry for staff and for students um, across the seven Australian campuses of ACU. It's funny where life takes you. Um, I didn't quite expect that. But for now, let's turn back to our topic. Let's turn back to Mary and let's set the scene for this short investigation of Mary's motherhood of us, the church. Um, I believe there's always a great risk in turning the mother of Jesus into some kind of soppy, pretty lady instead of what history and anthropology and archaeology and the Gospels, properly understood, do tell us or at least suggest about her. So, there's no scene in Christian tradition more familiar to us than this image of the infant Jesus lying in a manger in Bethlehem. 
from the great artists of the Renaissance to commercial Christmas card makers of today. This picture has been rendered again and again, complete with its familiar cast of characters. Visiting shepherds, wise men from afar, barnyard animals, and of course, at the center of it all, a young and newly married Jewish couple and their infant son. And among the many characters who make up this traditional Christmas creche, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has always been easy to spot. You can spot her right now, can't you, if you look? The only trouble is the wonder and trauma of childbirth is diligently scrubbed away. She appears as a picture of springtime freshness. Hands folded, head bowed, eyes downcast demurely quite often. How very unlike the Mediterranean peasant woman who brought forth a son in a stable and yet whose destiny was to be the saviour of his people. So I think we must ask ourselves again this question. What would possess us to transform the scandal of that incarnation into symbols and scenes at once almost banal and prosaic? To mute the message, to make it nothing more than a comforting tale of babes and barns and cribs and creches, shepherds and angels that sing? Well, I think we can find the answer to our question in Mary because having similarly domesticated her and rendering her safe and risk-free, unable to upset us in our understanding about the demands of faith, I think if we are able to go into that question deeply, we might be able to unearth something about what it is to live a life that's centred on discipleship, discipleship shown to us by Mary. It's true um, that May and October are months especially dedicated to Mary in the church's year. Um, maybe you've had experiences of that where there's been special devotions or, or moments of remembering who Mary is for us in your own life. In the Northern Hemisphere, we know that May is springtime. So there's new life in trees and shrubs. And that's a, a reminder of that we're coming out of that Easter season and, and drawing on Mary's strength at that time for us and her witness for us as a disciple is a good reminder. But for us in the Southern Hemisphere, October, one of those other months we specially remember who Mary is, we've also got springtime and we've got the herald that summer's on the way, the warmth starting, um, summer storms might be beginning, but also it's a time of shrubs and flowers and especially roses just becoming such beautiful emblems for us in that time. In a sense, ecstasies of colour as we look forward to that time of the nativity. So I've named a few special months in the Catholic calendar yearly, but other than that, what really impacts us about those things? Well, I believe that it's actually the image of Mary in the Gospel that might shatter some of those rather pretty and nice images associated with flowers and springtime seasons. And those images have been built up, of course, over a long period of time, and with good reason. But let's remember that Mary grew up in Nazareth, an insignificant little village in Galilee. Dare I say, a bit like Burke in New South Wales, or Winton in Queensland, or Omeo in Victoria. And I won't pick on Tasmania. 
She experienced the harsh life of caravan during journeys to and from the city of Jerusalem at Passover time. A bit like the toughness of being on a muster or an outback camping trip before four-wheel drives. She knew the poverty and hardship of travelling while the birth of her child was imminent. And then, delivering in a stable. Hardly glamorous. Something like a shearing shed or a backyard lean-to. She knew the terror of persecution so beautifully uh, explained to us by Archbishop uh, Nona just a minute ago. She knew what it was like to escape at night from these, the king's soldiers. She knew what it was like to be on the road for days on end while caring for and carrying this small child. Throughout the centuries, pious people have made, I unfortunately believe, a bit of an antiseptic plaster saint of the mother of Jesus, barely touching the flesh and the blood reality of her life and her relationships. She knew the life of a refugee, exiled in a foreign land, unable to settle down, restless for news which might make it safe for her to return to her native land and to loved ones, maybe a bit like the Rohingya women and children of the Rakhine state in Myanmar. We see them frequently on our TV news and I've met some of them living as exiles in Thailand. She related to people who were on the edge in all sorts of ways. For that's where she lived most of her life, on the edge. She was one of them. She knew those people's hopes and despairs, their joys and their griefs. She bore God. She is the Theotokos. But Mary walked with those for whom life was a constant struggle. If you like, there was dust on her feet. And she's there for us too, replicating the same journey of ups and downs that's been the experience of each one of us so far in the journey of our lives. This mother, she knows our hopes and our dreams and our needs. And so I hope that all of this just gives, at this point anyway, a little inkling as to what a mother of the church might mean for us, the members of that church. Apologies, this text might just be a little small and I'll just read it just in case. I hate reading things off the screen, but I will. It's up to you today to manifest in an original and specific way the presence of Mary in the life of the church and of humankind. Developing for this purpose a Marian attitude characterized by joyful disposability to the cause of the Holy Spirit, an unshakable confidence in the word of the Lord, a spiritual journey in relation to the different mysteries of the life of Christ, and a maternal attention to the needs and sufferings of people, especially the most simple. And as you can see, that was um, St. John Paul II, who was actually addressing the, the many branches of the Marist family. But I believe that that message actually is much broader than just to a couple of congregations. I think it's for all of us who believe in this Mary, mother of the church. You know the expression, Marian face of the church, it wasn't used until only recently. Um, first by the Swiss uh, Jesuit theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, and then it was either inspired by him or cited directly by people like Popes St. John Paul II, uh, Benedict XVI. So, what does this Marian face of the church mean? I'm not sure if it's an expression that you've heard before. 
But to better grasp the meaning of what we understand by this Marian face of the church, it's probably good to situate it in its context. That theologian, von Balthasar, he refers to the Marian principle to describe Mary's mission in the origin of the church. But he also uses other expressions like Marian dimension, Marian profile, Marian face, Marian aspect of the church, referring to those historical manifestations of the life of the church derived from attitudes which Mary responds to her mission as a believer and as a member of the ecclesial community. So to speak then of the Marian face of the church is an invitation for us to experience and participate in the mission of Mary. Now, a little bit of information, and while I'm speaking in the next few minutes, I really invite you to, to have a look at what I'm presenting in terms of archetypes and to think about yourself and say, hmm, I wonder where I fit most easily within what's been described. So, von Balthasar analyzes uh, four lives that he offers as different dimensions, or we could call them archetypes, of the life of the church. It's an image of the people of God, showing the distinctive giftedness of each. And it's not so much a historical reconstruction, but rather it's a theology of the early church. And what I'm presenting to you there is the icon of the ascension. Um, They're always painted in this similar way, no matter by whom. And I think it might help us to just visualise what I'm talking about a little better. Now, the paths travelled by the protagonists of these four stories who had had experience of Jesus, the risen Lord, within their own communities, these different pathways could actually be travelled by any believer. They can be travelled by us. This icon is not trying to depict a hierarchy of gifts of holiness, one better than the other, but rather it describes very much a theology from below. In other words, the relationships between the characters are meant to be understood as horizontal and vertical as Marian and Petrine. So, my apologies if you've done some work previously in understanding iconography, but as a refresher, just right in the centre, you'll you'll notice that Mary is wearing both red, which symbolises divine in iconography, and green, which symbolises the earth. I want you to look at her right hand, Can you notice that she's pointing towards Peter? And her left hand, which points towards Christ. So that gives us an indication about what the iconographer wants us to understand about the theology. Peter is the leader, and it's all to Christ. She's not depicted alone, you notice. She's in relationship, and that relationship is with all in heaven and earth, divine and natural, red and green. And we can see she's a pivotal, unifying, central figure placed at the centre of this icon of the ascension. So, a little bit of description about who the other archetypes are in this icon. The first is Peter. So he's just on, on our left 
to the right of Mary. In the first place, the experience of Peter, who discovers that Jesus, with whom he lived for several years, died on the cross for his countrymen, but God raises him up. And so the conviction of his faith serves as a confirmation and security for that of his brothers. The story of Peter's faith is, is the foundation for theological reflection on the so-called Petrine principle. It's, um, it's so clear for us that this needs to be central, grounded and absolute within our, our faith understanding. The second story tells of the charismatic experience of the life of Paul and particularly his, but not um, identifiable with that of the Twelve. In other words, what was Paul's experience specifically, but not just lumped in with the rest of the Apostles? And I think we could say that the Pauline principle, which comes from this um, reflection, is also a very, a very strong and very dynamic part of our church experience. The third one is more the mystical experience of life, and that's um, attributed to John, who transmits that what has existed since the beginning, that what we have heard, that what we have seen with our own eyes, what we've watched and touched with our hands, the Word, who is life, this is the so-called Joannine tradition or Joannine principle. And there's one more, the fourth, James. Uh, in other places, when von Balthasar talks, he proposes other schemes. Some of them are, have got even more description than what I'm giving you today. But he includes a fourth Jacobean um, principle as well. And you can see I've got some words that describe what that Jamesian style of being in the church is all about. Now, just in case I went too quickly through some of those, we're going to come back a little bit later and look at those um, against each other. But I want you just in these next few moments at least just to think about the description about the Petrine style. The words which tell us a little bit about a Pauline energy. Wondering about the mystical Joannine aspect. And lastly the Jacobean. And I'm going to ask you a little bit later when you talk with someone next to you about where do you find yourself most comfortable? And where do you think you might need to grow most in your Christian life? So finally, although we could perfectly well say that uh, in the first place and at a much deeper level and closer to the centre, there's the experience of the mother of the Lord. She's the central character in our story. Um, because of a relationship with Christ. Um, it's an intimate and total experience which flows on to the church and makes it fruit fruitful that she has. And that's the foundation of this Marian principle. It's at the centre. But we'll reflect on that a little bit later and, and also those other four archetypes. So the Marian principle is in distinct aspects, you could say, more fundamental perhaps than the Petrine principle. I'll just, say, I'll just tell you why. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, this is number 773, the Marian dimension of the church precedes its Petrine dimension. And in 1987, St. John Paul II himself says, the Marian profile is as fundamental, and in brackets I put, if not more, uh, as fundamental and characteristic of the church as the apostolic and Petrine principle. 
to which it is profoundly united. So this means for every Christian, being a believer is more important than the ministry he or she exercises. It's about our faith. So the Marian experience then relates and connects faith, vision, heaven, earth, and it resolves that tension between the church perfect and immaculate and the church of sinners. That's us. Because Mary believed by faith and by faith conceived, as says St. Augustine, that she is the first believer and she's the mother of God. And in Mary, the believer and the mother of God cannot be separated. Her experience of Christ is it's spiritual and corporal at the same time. She bore Jesus Christ. For this reason, we can't jump from a visible hierarchical Petrine church to an invisible and spiritual church in which we encounter that Marian dimension. So these different parts aren't opposed, but they're complementary in my opinion. And I believe that it wouldn't be correct to contrast these different dimensions of the church and opt for a church with a Marian face in contradistinction with a Petrine church. It's an easy argument, but it doesn't lead to anything constructive. And the reverse applies as well. Von Balthasar wrote that um, when the Marian dimension is rejected, everything becomes polemical, more critical, more bitter, less friendly, and ends up boring. And he says that people will flee a church like that en masse. But wouldn't it be ironical to use a church that takes inspiration from Mary as a weapon against hierarchy, for example, becoming more polemical, more critical, more bitter, less friendly, using Mary as your sword? Uh, I'm not then going against anyone or anything. Uh, in fact, the only thing that could be proved if I did that would be my own lack of consistency in living the ideals that I proclaim. So I'd like to present to you some icons or some ways, different ways of understanding what a church with a Marian face might look like for us. Um, we know that the Greek churches and the, and the Slavic churches have long considered the veneration of icons as um, part of the liturgy that we call celebrate the liturgy of the word. And just I think as the reading of books or texts allows us to understanding the living word of God, so the exposition of painted icons allows those who contemplate them to, to gain access, if you like, through our sight to the mysteries of salvation, which, look, in one part they're expressed through ink and paper, but in another part maybe they're expressed also through different colours and materials. And St John Paul II wrote about that extensively. It's perhaps true that um, you know, the icon could be said as a parable for the eyes and what the words announce to the ears, the painting of an icon says silently and shows silently to the eyes. The Council of, Second Council of Nicaea actually made that statement. So if we don't belong to that spiritual tradition of Christianity, and most of us don't, I know, or all of us, maybe icons aren't all that easy to understand, but nonetheless they have been gaining popularity in various parts of the world uh, that are influenced by Western Christianity. We know that they belong to the first millennium uh, before the division of our church, but they do reflect the ancient beliefs and practices of our Christian community. Um, wouldn't it be fantastic if the use of icons and allowing them to be vehicles of our prayer, if they might be a sign for us of a church that's actually undivided in the third millennium? It's true, we, we have so much importance of words in our Western culture 
and of logic and the need to listen, but maybe the East has got something to teach us about the image and about intuition and the need to contemplate. So we're going to look at three different Marian moments through an icon, but the, the actual image of the icon is not important as much as the significance of it. And we're going to look at those to give us a better understanding of what this Marian church and its characteristics might look like for us in our contemporary life and world right now. Um, so I want to align these three icons with three concepts, three invitations. The first is Mary's visitation and aligning it with service. The second, the Pentecost moment and aligning that with family or community. And the third, seeing the Annunciation as an invitation to faith in action. Um, don't worry, I'm not that silly. I know that's not the chronological order of the events for Mary. But I just present those to you because I, li I like to finish with faith in action. So, let's be challenged by each of these icons as I talk about them. And let's be conscious that the attitudes of Mary, who is the first disciple... Um, that she might be able to help us um, realise in our world what the actual maternal face of the church looks like through our lives and our gift. There was an Italian bishop, he died about, uh, I think about 25 years ago maybe, um, Tonino Bello, and he was quite a poet, a bit prophetic in some ways, and he used often this image of, um, of the visitation and understanding the service element of the church because he said, um, he said the only liturgical garment or ornament that we can attribute to Jesus is probably an apron. Why do I say that? He said, the Lord got up from the table, removed his outer garment and taking a towel, wrapped it round his waist. Here is the church of the apron. So whoever wants to draw the church as, as the heart of Jesus experiences it has to draw it with a towel i mean literally draw it with a towel around its waist someone could object that that's an excessive image of you know servility um, maybe a bit like a photo that you don't want to show your relatives when they come around to your house because it looks a bit weak but the church of the apron is the church that jesus prefers because that's how he made it so if we're to become servants in the world then to get down on the ground as Jesus did and set to the washing of the feet of the people, the world, then that's the church. And my question is, whose feet do we wash? I believe we share in the spiritual motherhood of Mary as we take part in bringing Christ's life to the world of those whose lives we share. And we nurture that life in the ecclesial community whose communion we strengthen through fervent prayer and generous service. I believe to serve is actually the Christian vocation. And performed with great dedication and self-surrender, I think it's normally really much valued and it's appreciated. In this society we live, this global society, I think we've got you know, so much immediate access to information that can tell us about the poverty and the suffering and the marginalisation of people of millions all over the world. And that means that we must ask ourselves if we're doing something, or maybe even more, if we're doing everything possible to take care of those who are left out. And I'm not talking about rushing across to somewhere else in the world right now. I'm talking about your own suburb, your own campus, your own workplace, 
your own family where there's exclusion. Um, a good test to find out how we're doing would be to say, how do other people identify us? Do they see in us the maternal face of the church? Do your family members, your housemates, your uni residents, friends, see it in you? And I think I've been particularly happy and, and proud, actually, in all of this um, strong, strong attack on the Catholic Church at the moment, especially to do with the issues around um, institutional sexual abuse of children, that many of our bishops, in fact, probably all of them, they've stood up and they've said, can you just take a look at who we are as a people and what we do to care for people and maybe make a judgment on that? And we know that if, if the Catholic Church decided, okay, it's a bit tough, let's go home, we'll just shut up our shop, we know that the, the, the welfare agencies in Australia would collapse. Australia would be in deep trouble. We know we've tested this before. In Catholic education in the 60s, we said we're going home, um, you can educate the kids, and we know that brought in enormous changes in terms of government financial aid to Catholic schooling. So I think our world, our Australian politicians do know how important we are in the mix and they value us, but uh, they don't like to say that publicly too much. So in whatever area we study or work, we should be sharing our journey with all people of goodwill. Trying, endeavouring that service be a priority value in our societies. Although the quest for prestige and power and wealth offers very powerful competition in Australia. I think the presence among us of other Christian confessions or other religions or other people still searching, that allows us to offer a witness of the open and serving church we should feel called to construct. And Archbishop Nona spoke beautifully about that, about how Christians need to witness. We must witness. If we look at the world from another person's perspective, I think that means that we are capable of actually walking in someone else's shoes being touched by the experience of someone else. Um, that doesn't mean we approve of someone else's actions or we have to sell ourselves short. But we know that when Jesus bends down to wash the feet of his disciples, his perspective is from below. It's a question of serving, but not as the leading actors or those who have all the answers, but from your knees. And that is to say, from the humble attitude of one who serves those you love, not with anything to come back in return. You know, how many, if I think about it, how many times have I heard people tell me how um, their vision of the world changed when they agreed to get down on their knees and to help and to see the world from below and to let themselves be educated by other people without fear or prejudice. And it's true, it's dangerous to do that. If you do that, your world view will never be the same again. Uh, it's also my hope that even within our own church that those who govern us might let themselves be guided by this spirit of Mary, the handmaid of the Lord. Uh, I think if they can listen, ponder and then act, then they'll be doing that Marian leadership I'm talking about. Um, it's a leadership from below without all the ready-made answers, uh, but it's got a lot of attentive listening in it and it lets people enter into real dialogue and be challenged by what they hear and not say, tell me everything you want, but I've got my mind made up anyway before you tell me. 
I think that's actually a very weak position to be in. The second icon I want to show you is um, an icon of Pentecost, and I think you can identify some of the characters in there. Once again, you'll notice that uh, Mary is central in the picture. So, my opinion about, um, about us is sometimes that we've turned our Catholic Church and, and our shop fronts sometimes into archaeological exhibits or museums. Um, we're not meant to be that. I think if you, if you think about us as a church, we're meant to be like an ancient fountain that provides water and spiritual nourishment for the people of today. Um, John the 23rd, um, the Pope back in 1960, he made a beautiful um, sort of connection, I guess, with those amazing 2,000 strong fountains that you find in Rome. Every corner of Rome has got water. And it's funny because they just run day and night. And for those of us from Australia, we go and say, what about drought, you know? Shouldn't you turn it off? And, and they did once, I think. Um, many tourists are so surprised at the generosity of this. And they say, is it, is it good? You know, because in Rome, everything, everything costs. You know, go to the toilet, costs. But somehow the water's free. Um, some people think that the pipe's a bit rusty, you know? So, or the basin's a bit dirty. But the Romans don't care about that. They know that that water is as good and fresh as it was in the time of the aqueducts. Um, and Pope John said, so the church should be like that too. Even if we look a bit cracked or dirty, or we look a bit messy, we're still good. So I'm wondering then about, you know, our university chaplaincies and our, and our parishes and our religious congregations too. They shouldn't be exhibits to visit, but they should be living places where people actually get that sense of moving water of life-giving water with us. And we know that we need to be the fountains. You need to be the fountain. You need to provide for that water, Jesus Christ, to flow. Now, that makes you pretty humble because you, you, you have to realise then you're going to be in a permanent state of movement as you provide the water. And it's about openness and generosity all the time. And that can be very wearing. But I think if we look at this community at Pentecost, we see it's united around Mary and we know that the gift it's got to offer the world, this community, is not itself, it's Jesus Christ emerging from the tomb in the bottom of that image. You know, in more than one place in my experience, I've noticed the fact that sometimes we let ourselves be led by a spontaneous tendency to, to reproduce in our own communities and places of study divisions which exist in society. Uh, for example, we've often made distinctions or separations about those who pray this way or that way or belong to this group or that group or dress this way or dress that way. Or maybe they've got a devotional practice, it's this and mine's that. Look, I don't think any of that sort of dualistic thinking or separating into this or that is any help to overcome division which is so rife in our own society here in Australia. So instead of being people who are a bit prophetic and, and proclaiming unity, which is what the Catholic Church is so well able to do, um, what we do is we actually create divisions. So I think, you know, are there situations that, that we can think about in our own lives when we need to say, I need to change that tendency? I think clearly we can change it, but we've got to be aware of it in ourselves. And then be prepared to really be in this 
position of dialogue and encounter. Not having to give everything up because someone else convinces you of their way, but being prepared to live with a beautiful multiplicity of experience. Has anyone, um, anyone here been to Lourdes in France? Okay, lucky you, because I haven't yet. But, you know, I've, I've been struck also by people who've told me the one thing they know, notice when they go there, is that, um, that everyone who's got, um, you know, disability or people who are sick, they get first preference in that place. First preference. I know there's a lot of crowd control and so on. And uh, even being a person in a wheelchair is not easy in Lourdes because of the volume of people who are seeking help and assistance. But I just think that's wonderful that at least there's one place in Earth where that occurs, where those who are the neediest get recognised as the most special. Um, wouldn't it be wonderful if our institutions, our unis, our workplaces were like that too? Not just because HR tells us we have to do something, but because we actually believe it's the right thing to do without having to explain it, just wanting to give preference for those who need a leg up. I think Mary's inspired in countless congregations, mine's one of them, um, a new vision of being church that was modelled on that of the first Christians. And this Marian church I'm talking about, it's got a mother's heart. No one's abandoned. You know, a mother believes in the goodness and the core of a person and forgives readily, no matter what. How many TV programs have you seen where, you know, someone's been accused of a horrific crime and the mother's response is, I love him and I don't know why this has happened. So let's be respectful of every person's journey. I think there's a place for those within us for people who've got doubts, people who are uncertain spiritually. I think we need to be experts at listening and dialogue. In making a place for Mary among us, we learn how people are to be loved, and we in turn become living signs of the Father's tenderness. This statue that you see here, it's called the Good Mother. It was very common, I believe, in, in France in the late 18th century. But it was, it, that's a photograph of the actual uh, statue we've inherited from St. Marcelin Champagne, who's the founder of my congregation. It's an image full of tenderness. Look at that little baby sucking his finger. Isn't that a sign of trusting rest in the arms of his mother? So I want to invite you to take up with joy, but also with a sense of responsibility too, what this inheritance is that we have from our Marian tradition. Uh, to, to grow in the sense of community that you, know, you already have in, among you because you came here for this weekend. But those communities also that you create wherever you are in the service of one another and to reflect that beautiful maternal face. The last of the three that I'd like to present to you is the icon of the Annunciation. Um, a little catchphrase I like to, to think about is Beauty will save the world. <laughs> will it? Well, our experience shows that in a convincing way that violence and those who employ power for their own benefit don't save the world. We know that. So what about this motif then? I think our world, which is uh, it's pretty full of structural unjustness and, and violence, I think it needs to open itself up to the beauty of silence and wonder and gratitude. Um, I don't know about yours, but my human heart thirsts for that. Um, even though I don't sort of always reach that or, or find out 
you know, how I'm going to get to that place. It's difficult sometimes. Um, I bet you a number of you have been part of something like World Youth Day, I'm not sure, but you might have been to Poland or Rio or Madrid or maybe Sydney 10 years ago. You might have been too young, some of you, to go there. Or maybe you were dragged along in a youth group or something. Um, but I was there in Sydney and I know that it resonated with me when I asked people, what's the thing that impressed you most about that? Guess what? It wasn't the plane trip there. It wasn't the food, because that's always bad. <laughs> See, they know. <laughs> um, I'm not having a go at Poland, right? <laughs> um, but do you know what it was that got them? It was the quiet. It was millions of people being quiet during the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and we know, you know, I know you had um, an experience of that last night. When you've got a confined place and a beautiful chapel and, and smoke and candles and Jesus Christ, it's easy for Jesus Christ to come into that space because we create a lot of conditions. But in Sydney, it was, I think it was about two degrees. It was cold. I had people around about me who is the first time they'd ever seen that happen. So they were a bit confused. And yet I experienced Jesus Christ that night in the middle of all sorts of uncomfortability and probably actually my own lack of expectation that anything would happen. So I think it's possible that this deep listening, this deep um, silence can actually touch us deeply. And I believe that maybe the first part of the mystery of God we, we experience is God's beauty, maybe before God's truth, but maybe it's different for different people. The funny thing is that, you know, we're talking about silence and contemplation. And what am I doing? Talk, talk, talk. But we have to have a few words. So my question for you is, how are you attending to your interior life? You know, in every human person, there's such an insatiable longing for, for what rises from the depth of you. And that's Jesus Christ. Um, I think in various parts of the world, there's clear signs that, that people want to return to this inner life, this spiritual quest. But... There's all sorts of ways that it manifests itself that just, I don't know, they're a bit dead end for me. So someone who tells me that they're doing meditation and it's just the greatest thing ever. And I kind of, I just ask them sometimes, when you meditate, what? About what? Uh, and then if they say to me, oh, it's just about my life and how, you know, how I'm going and just trying to still myself. And I say, why? And I think sometimes people get, they don't want me to ask any more questions then because it gets uncomfortable, right? But to me, unless you actually move beyond meditation and you get to contemplation and you get to wordlessness, then you're not going to allow Jesus Christ to actually make himself present. Not easily, anyway. So I think no matter what continent we live on, we live in the middle of lots of forces which, um, which lead us to, to live in a very superficial state right now. Um, I don't know if anyone's on Facebook right now. Maybe you are. <laughs> checking, checking out what my profile is. I don't know. Um, but I, I wonder whether this might have been the experience of St. Augustine, you know. Because he described in his confessions, and we know this, I'm sure you've heard it. Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. And here you were within me, and I was outside and outside I was searching for you. And deformed as I was, I threw myself on the beautiful things you've created. You were with me, but I was not with you. 
Those things kept me far from you, which, if they did not exist in you, would not be at all. So I think Mary shows us this path to follow. Mary of silence, of acceptance, of attentive listening. That's what's going on in this picture. I frequently thank God for the blessing in, in my life. Marvellous people I've had who've journeyed alongside me with you know, quite a lot of simplicity in my own congregation, but also many friends, who live their fidelity, who nourish their faith, they, and they put faith into action. Now, maybe when you hear those kind of phrases, you might think of your friends or maybe parents or a sister or a priest or brother who stands out for you, who've modelled that for you. I think most of them are people whose biographies actually won't be published um, or whose names won't appear in the, new, the news and they won't have the word saint officially inscribed before their names. But those people are a major treasure in our world and in our church. And I think if they're at our, at our, at our disposal, we must make sure that we really draw from them um, because I think they are, in essence, the, the unofficial communion of saints. How many witnesses like these have lived as such authentic, mystical type of people hanging on to a rosary? Maybe another prayer style too. But, you know, can there be a simpler prayer than this, the rosary? It's the prayer of very simple people. It's repetitious. It's not complicated, especially the way I do it, because I, I leave half the formulas out. And I think your love and your trust get expressed when you just repeat these same words time after time. Maybe it situates us this prayer in the tradition of the prayer of the heart of the first centuries and that tradition that has never ceased in our church. I know many spiritual masters that it's been written about, they've found in the rosary a, a terrific way of expressing their trust and abandonment uh, in the Lord. And while it's recommended that we you know, pray the whole rosary, well, if you can't, then pray a decade. Pray ten Hail Marys. And if that's not possible, try five or try two. And if you can't do that, then what about having some beads and just kiss them before you go to bed? Something that just connects you with this deep mystery of love expressed through the discipleship of Mary. Now, Am I recommending going back to all sorts of devotional practices? Well, if you knew me better, you'd probably say, no, Michael wouldn't do that. But what I am saying is, whatever you do, make sure absolutely that you pray. And you've got to find a style that works for you. You know, some of us who are here in various forms of religious life or um, guys who are priests, people who are religious sisters, people who are in associations of Christ faithful, they all have particular ways that they pray and gives them corporate sense of meaning. But sometimes it can be hard for you individually. You know, you get together with friends, turn up to mass, go to some other kind of prayer support group. Okay, it's there. But what happens every day for you? I think this abandonment I'm suggesting in this Marian style, I think that will open your heart to people and to events more than you can imagine. And I think you might be very deeply touched if you move into this space a little bit more, because we know that Mary tried to do that. She tried to discern the footprints of God, of her son, in everything, especially after he had died. Everything was interpreted 
through trying to understand his footprints in her life experiences. Um, you know, St. Teresa, I think, uh, of Calcutta, she's probably a great example of a contemplative inaction. <laughs> she was very activist. But she says that the, the fruit of silence is prayer and the fruit of prayer is faith. So the faith has got to come from some interiority. So, how are you going to develop that mystical dimension of your life? Um, I suggest by paying a price for it to grow and sprout. And what's the price? Some silence, some dedication of time, some attentive listening to the Word, to Eucharist, to other celebrations of faith. But with patience, you know, and not with, not with the pretentiousness of, um, I'm here, God, turn it on now. No, I think we have to wait. I think we have to be constant. And, you know, my own life experience, our efforts at, at trying to do this, we can go for years sometimes and the results aren't real clear. But I think you will experience one day a light that's proportionate to your efforts. And I think it will flood you. So I hope you're encouraged by those three moments, those Marian icons, if you like, as to how this maternal church might become a reality in our lives and in the world, the Annunciation, which inspires faith in action, the Visitation, which does call us into service of the other, and Pentecost, which invites us into a communal and family type of experience, modelled to us by the Trinity. So, just to finish up, here's those four archetypes again. hope you haven't forgotten them. And I'm wondering if you might just like to turn to the person next to you. If you're not close to someone, roll on over. And I want you to answer these two questions with each other. Don't worry, we're not going to have call-outs up to here and get people to declare which part they're on. No. But I wonder, where are you? In which dimension of the church do you find yourself most comfortable? If you want to say Marion, that's okay. You just get a gold star. But, <laughs> but I'm talking about these four. And then my question... The question for you is, what's the dimension that could be a healthy growth point for you? Where, where do you feel a bit like, oh, it's not really me, but maybe you might be called to be in that space. So would you just take two minutes with people near you? Where do you feel comfortable in these archetypes? Here's some words to describe them a bit better. And where do you feel you need to grow? Over to you just for a few moments. So I wonder if I can just call you back. That's good. I, I didn't see any, I didn't see any fights. It's true. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But guess what? We might need a bit of Pauline land, and we might need a bit of Jacobean mortar in between those rocks, and we might have to have John giving us some, some fencing and some shelter. I'm just making up those metaphors. But <laughs> Peter's great, but there's, there's, uh, there's so much more to who we are as well. This year, um, a Marian feast was proclaimed. I'm sure you know. Mary, mother of the church. Um, I'm sure, and in fact I'm glad, that m that might in have inspired your suggestion of this talk's topic to me, AXA Executive. I don't know. 
But as far back as the 12th century, there are records of a bishop using the title Mary, Mother of the Church, and Pope Leo XIII from the 19th century said in his encyclical on the Rosary that Mary at Pentecost was in very truth the Mother of the Church, the Teacher and the Queen of the Apostles. In the early 80s, St John Paul II had a mosaic commissioned for the outside wall of his papal apartment entitled Mater Ecclesiae, Mother of the Church, in gratitude for his recovery after being shot in St Peter's Square. And he also spoke about Mary as a mediator, someone who intercedes for us. So that idea of Mary interceding for us is so important for us to embrace. Um, I, I think the fact that this feast has been placed straight after Pentecost makes it evident that the church aligns itself with Mary's initial outwards dynamic movement. Mary did what a mother would do. She prayed with and for her children in that upper room, calming their fears and gathering them around her. It's no accident that in John's Gospel we have Jesus announcing to his mother and the beloved disciple, here is your son, here is your mother. So, I think we should experience much joy in accepting Mary as mother of the church, dynamically, really, in our lives. It's clear that she's a woman of profound joy. My heart rejoices. Not my heart rejoices. My heart rejoices. That's the word that Luke has us singing in the Magnificat. And then the qualifying phrase tells us why. Because of God my Saviour. It's that little phrase that gives us the first key to Mary's all-absorbing and sustaining joy. And the second key is what happened just before she sings her encounter with her cousin Elizabeth. These are the twin sources of Mary's joyfulness. The personal embrace of her cousin in need and her absolute trust in the God in whom she lives and moves and has her being. So, to finish, if we want to live young Catholic life faithfully in our contemporary world, let's embrace getting ourselves out of the centre of the picture. Let's lose our pride and our impatience with things. And let's be convinced about what needs to be done and eager to do it, but make sure that it's not just activism, but rather a mystical attentiveness to what God uh, wants us to do that drives us and draws us into God's plans. Holiness and happiness, and ultimately God, they're encountered in the other and never apart from the encounter with the other. Mary shows us that. I think Mary's an amazing exemplary personification of what Beatitudes living looks like. She's a disciple par excellence. And I believe that like Mary, you and I are invited to hear Gabriel's invitation to rejoice in God's favour. Not to find that joy by swooning in mystic rapture, but by putting the other at the centre of our lives. I think Mary of the Visitation might have the most attraction to us in this sense. The desire to allow God's spirit to move us towards holiness is what's important. I think it will be seen in a university student's gentle outreach or in his or her patience or generosity or in a welcoming smile followed up by deep listening, not dogmatic proclamation. So desire and what we do with that each day, that's our way of understanding our deep core. 
can I encourage you to take those little daily steps to follow Christ in your own life and become holy under this banner of Mary, our mother and the mother of the church. Thanks. That was Brother Michael Callanan with Mary, Mother of the Church. This talk was given at the Australian Catholic Students Association 2018 National Student Conference on the theme, I am with you always. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.